me just make the case then as quickly as I can. And I like to tell stories about experiences of people I've met or I know or experiences I've had. And so during the election, a woman rang me up and said, could I go and see her? And we did. And she was a nurse, she is a nurse working in the theatres in Wakefield, the operating theatres. They double the number of theatres and half the number of staff removed the porters. So the nurses were then required to lift the patients from the theatres onto the trolleys, take them back to the beds and then lift them off the trolleys and into the beds. And one day she woke up and it hit, it twisted round to be in a completely different plane to the rest of her body and it was clear that she'd broken her back, lifting a very heavy patient. And she was off work for nine months. And eventually they fixed the back and she went back to work. The same process again, lifting heavy bodies from one place to another. Because there were less uh, staff there than there ought to be uh, to make the place safe. Here's, uh, that's an appalling story, but here's why she has to see me. Because when I went to the house, there were no carpets on the floor. Uh, we, there was no food in the fridge, no coffee, no tea, no sugar. And when I looked in her eyes, a young woman, in her late 30s I guess, you could see despair and hopelessness. It was a tragic conversation because she could no longer afford to feed the children. And the children, two sons, had left home to go live with their father because she couldn't feed them. Now that situation is a disgrace. And it's happening everywhere as a result of austerity. Let me just reflect quickly on austerity and the lies that were told before we then show how that links precisely through to our so-called democratic structures. Because I was in Downing Street, I was working for Gordon Brown, I was his political advisor when the crash happened. And what happened was a classic social democratic moment where the market, in this case the capital markets, were collapsing and the state had to move in in order to protect the wider interests of society from market failure. And that's what the last Labour government did. And it cost over a, billion, a trillion pounds to bear out the banks. A trillion pounds to bear out the banks. Now, my disagreement then with Gordon was, look, look, there's a chance to change the whole paradigm. The way we see our society, the fact that the market somehow is meant to be superior, and, tri and triumphal, clearly is self-evidently not the case. And only was an active government capable of saving the whole economy. Gordon felt he couldn't do it for various reasons, which I can't go into now. Their figure of a trillion pounds was then turned by the Tories into the reason for austerity and why that nurse I met that day and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of other people in our country began to suffer in the way that we know that they have. But here's the interesting thing. The trillion pounds bankers bailout has been paid off by the sale of the shares back into the private sector. Now we may disagree with the sales, we do disagree with the sales. 
But the reason for austerity, allegedly, was to stop to pay for the bailout. The bailout was self-financing. So what really happened with austerity was something entirely different. I'm sure an audience tonight like this is well aware what happened. Because in the 10 years, almost to the, certainly to the month, since those events when I was in Downing Street, the front row seat of what happened, the thousand richest people in our country increased their wealth by 460 billion pounds. They tripled their wealth roughly. 460 billion pounds of that additional wealth for a thousand people. Meanwhile, roughly the same amount of money, 400 billion, has been lost in incomes by working people. So there you have it, austerity, transferring almost the, the whole of the money from the spending power of working people, 33 million people, into the hands of the thousand richest people in our country. And that's what austerity was really about. A massive and sustained attack on working people in order to increase the wealth of a few on the futile idea that somehow wealth trickles down, which we know is a completely stupid notion. But the question I want to ask is, how did that happen? How did that happen? And of course there was failure by New Labour. Of course there was. But the truth is that our state structures have been captured by the interests of a handful of people and big corporations at the top. Our centralised structures and our democracy, such as it's described, has failed. And it's for those reasons, amongst others, that we need a wholesale transformation of all our structures to restore what the ideas, the inherent ideas of democracy say democracy should be about. And we are on to a winning argument because everybody in the country knows who's got a mind to exercise it, apart from those people who dominate the newspapers and the toys that politics isn't working. Look, 40% of the population in polls are saying they have no confidence in the House of Commons and a majority say that nothing in politics works really for people like us, for people like them. And that intuition, that insight, that view, the sense of an insurgency which you encounter on the doorsteps. When you knock on the door, people say you're all the effing same. You're all in it for yourselves. We encounter that as campaigners every day. And it's hard to disagree that politics is broken fundamentally with that idea. And the reason why it's broken is because the state itself has been captured by the interests of a few. It's as fundamental as that. Now, we need to exercise great care, we need to reflect with great attention to exactly the direction we need to go in, but it's clear to me that the democratic processes of the so-called no longer work. I want to finish with this uh, series of thoughts, because if you think, reflect carefully on what is the nature of democracy, I think it consists of three separate ideas, all interconnected. The first is equality. Every single person in the country has the same vote in a secret ballot. That's a radical idea, the idea of equality. 
you can vote in a closed booth and not be subject to intimidation by your employer or by anybody else. Secondly, democracy suggests popular sovereignty. The idea, though we protect minorities, that the majority of the people, the many, not the few, are in charge of the direction of our country. So popular sovereignty is a second idea contained within the idea of, of democracy. And the third idea is that of universality, that there's something common in every human being, a universal presence in all of us. Now, if you measure the political structures in our society by those three ideas, equality, uh, popular sovereignty, and universality, it has to be said that our institutions simply don't work. Now look, it's fairly clear already some of the directions we need to move in. We've talked about a federal Britain. We've talked about restoring democracy to the councils. And we've talked about increasing industrial democracy and inputting workers onto the boards. I want to see a convention which is led by the citizens of our country, which rebuilds our institutions based on those three values from the bottom up in a new and very dramatically different democratic way and to give the word democracy back its meaning. But let me just finish on this point. You're all here presumably because you're interested in all of these ideas about democracy and, uh, and institutions and structures of the constitution. If you agree with me that that kind of radical transformation is necessary in our society, then we're going to have to fight for it. We have to fight for it in the country because, make no doubt about it, the powers of reaction, the powers of those people at the top, will fight tooth and nail to retain the power, the grip, the leverage which they exercise over our state institutions. We have to fight in our own ranks because, look, one of my other jobs is preparing Labour for government. Jeremy's asked me to lay out a programme for the first 100 days and then the first year and the first two years of Labour in office. There are huge pressures on the kind of commitments we're making, the NHS, the rail service and so on. If you, like me, agree that political reform has to be at the core of what we do, we're going to have to fight for it in our movement, to prioritise it. Otherwise, it will slip further down the agenda. And I think that cannot be the case if we want to deliver the kind of radical change that offers that nurse a future where she can stand tall, feed the kids, and look after the patients as well. So thanks for listening to me. I'm sorry I have to go, but I think we've got around round of, a round of questions and answers. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Roaming mics, I'll take three questions. We want to get. Is there any women? Any women? Yes, sorry, men. We'll start yourself. And we'll take three rounds, three sets in a round. You were given, uh, John, you were given this post when John was first elected, and we talked about enough of that time, and it kind of disappeared off the agenda. And it's only recently come back. But what happened? Why did it go away? Um, for a long period of time. Yes, I realise it's, it's complicated and it's very difficult, but having been involved in this for years and years and years and years, I was really enthusiastic. And then it kind of just went away, nobody seemed to be interested in it at all. Um, and yes, I agree it's going to be a, a, a really 
hard job of doing it. And the other thing I just want to say is when you talk about equal votes, I mean, you didn't mention participation, which I think is incredibly important to democracy, finding spaces and places where people at all levels, in civil society as well as in the state, in the national state, whatever you like to call it, are crucially important. Absolutely. And also, I think that you talked about one person, one vote. Well, actually, votes don't count. And actually, you need to think about changing the electoral system as well. The gentleman over there? Yeah. Dr. Hi, thanks, John. I'm interested in you being a passenger in the passenger seat of the car crash that it appears now to be Gordon Brown's handling of the crisis and what the roadblocks involved. Because it seems to me that Brown, even though he was born to his figure more to the left than the, the neoliberal hardcore Blairites, he was so timid in reforming the banking sector, he saved it, but he didn't reform it. So, um, you know, what, were there voices at the time that suggested maybe taking down the bankers, making them pay for the crisis, maybe using those banks that we took over to restructure them and make them work for ordinary people? Um, where were those voices? What were the power, the roadblocks that you experienced in government to making that happen? The gentleman in the yellow top, just at the other end. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, Jeremy from Southwark. Uh, I'd add one thing, John, to your um, definition of uh, democracy, and that's class. Yeah, it matters what class the democracy is for. You only have to look at America and how many people are excluded from the democratic system because of their class and their race. Uh, my question is, um, we have a problem in Southwark of um, having a radical local government agenda. And we found that the stipulation from, I think, two years ago con conference, that if you vote against a budget which involves cuts, you could be not only suspended from the Labour group, but also expelled from the party. And this actually is a discouragement from left-wingers standing as councillors. And also, we've just heard on the Twitter that the trade union block vote has been used to kick open selection of the agenda at conference. Those trade union block votes have been wielded with no democratic input from the membership. They're speaking without consulting their members and that's undemocratic and that's something we can change straight away. By the way, I think on the Labour movement, there's always more to do in democratising, but let's not underestimate where we've got to so far. There's more to do, and it's got to be member-led, and Jeremy wants that, I'm part of Jeremy's uh, team, and we talk about it more, almost every day, how do we extend democracy in the movement, and that needs to continue. So, I, you know, I'm a member of the NEC, I made my views clear last night, uh, so what I think about uh, member engagement, which needs to be much fuller, but we've taken a step, and there's more to be done. And let me just uh, quickly just go through the points which have been made. Um, from the beginning, by the way, we were committed to a constitutional convention at Millibank, and when uh, I was the first person to nominate Jeremy as the first MP to nominate Jeremy as the, as the leader. <laughs> 
And uh, I, said, I said to him, I think, you know, I wrote an article, it's quite an important article. There were three pillars to Jamie's victory, it seemed to me. Uh, a new economic consensus, redefine Britain's role in the world, move away from being a bellicose ally of, uh, or subordinate ally to the United States, and political reform, changing our politics. And so, uh, Jamie said, okay, you take politics, John takes, um, you know, the economy, and we move forward on, on reorientating Britain's role in the world. Well, the first thing I did was, can I see the files, uh, Ed Miliband's files on the Constitutional Convention? Well, it was about four lines. Uh, no work had really been done on it. And I don't know whether he, to be fair to him, he's a friend of mine, I uh, don't think he was kicking it into the long grass, but it wasn't going to happen in the first few days, given the fact that so little preparatory work had been done. What then happened is, um, we uh, committed ourselves to political reform. I became the person from the beginning charged with the Constitutional Convention. You might have noticed a little bit of turbulence in the Labour Party. Uh, there was a time when I was about, there was only four of us left in the Shadow Cabinet. I think I had four or five jobs uh, to do, including the Constitutional Convention. Um, it won't be easy. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot to do. And we then, uh, we then got to a point where we'd raise a significant, you need to raise a very large amount of money to do a proper constitutional convention. You need probably a million or two. By the way, apart from in Scotland, which is a special case, there is nowhere in the world which has had a convention by an opposition party. Because it will take a large amount of money. Uh, but we went, we found a funder uh, who was prepared to put a significant amount of money in, and then I was going to crowdfund the rest. And the decision of the committee to give us the money was scheduled for the 24th of June. Now what happened? A small detail, a referendum, result, Brexit. And so the funder said, look, the Constitution's in a bit of a turmoil. We're not going to give you money for a Constitutional Convention just yet, uh, simply because we want to see how this whole Brexit thing rolls out. Well, we're still watching now, but we're trying again to raise some money to get this thing back up on the road. And then we have a general election, by the way, Sarah. So there's been one or two things to keep us busy, but look, we are absolutely committed to this. And if there's been delays, it's my fault, but I've got some excuses that I'll just try to explain to you. Uh, as far as uh, you asked me about participation, I want to see a proper participative democracy uh, in all aspects of our society, our economy, uh, our political structures too, and to transform our political structures. I think, but, you, but, but we don't believe in top-down stuff. We've abandoned that. The idea of verticality in a world which has become horizontal, where the zeitgeist is cellular rather than hierarchy means that the leadership has to learn from the members and from the wider public. So it's down to you, in part at least, as well as the wider public, to guide us into the directions you want us to take. Clearly, participation in, uh, is where the zeitgeist now is. Uh, I was asked about roadblocks um, in 2008. Uh, let me just say, first of all, uh, Gordon is a different kind of politician to Blair, but he is wrapped, or was wrapped inside a new Labour 
discourse. And so there was an intellectual problem for us, for him and for the whole of those people to break. It seems to me it needed a new paradigm, and it still does need a, we're ten years on. We're only just now creating a new paradigm. What's wrong with Britain? How do we change it? How do we build a new economic consensus? And how do we make politics work differently? But then there were the institutions of the state and of the market and of the international global capital capitalists which were putting huge pressure on as well as the media. And I think, I think Gordon took the view that the scale of what he was facing was too much to make a new paradigm. He was too busy trying to save the whole of the, you know, the, the, all of these dominoes going one after the other. I think people will see, uh, history will give him a different writer to the one he got at the time, it's slightly unfair. But at the end of the day, you have to say he ought to have broken with the paradigm and failed to do so. It would be interesting to have a conversation about that, but that's not what I've come to talk about. But, except that it does explain partly the constraints on any Labour government. And I just want to just reflect on this. As I'm in charge of trying to get Labour ready for power, um, it's likely we were in, we'll, there'll be some headwinds, a bit like Gordon faced. You, know, you might say it's stronger than headwinds. Uh, we're going to need a massive movement mobilising around our programme in order to sustain the Labour government in office and also to renew it, uh, to give us new ideas, new directions, to make us always move forward, never to sit back and wait. So I think there are lessons from 2008. Well, I was asked about class. Well, actually, if you listen to what I said, I talked about 33 million workers losing 400 billion pounds and a thousand of the richest in our society gaining 460 billion pounds. If that's not the description of the most appalling, unequal class system, then I don't, I don't know what is. At, at, at the root of it, our state has been captured by the interests of a particular class of people, and yet it's meant to be a democratic system, and it runs the system runs counter to the ideas of democracy, as I've uh, as I've described. Look. There's a wonderful moment for us. What's wonderful about it, it feels like a moment which hasn't just come and gone, like sometimes moments do in politics. This is a prolonged time. And I often think about Gramsci and this idea that the old is dying all around us. The old is dying. The old ways of doing things, our economy, our politics, our relationships with the rest of the world, we can create a new world. We can create a new world. If we don't, what did Gramsci say? It will be a time of monsters. And you only have to look around. France, Marine Le Pen, America, with that swine in the White House. But also what looks like may happen to the Tory party if it gets handed over to Farage and Boris Johnson. A right-wing populist rogue seeking to blame poor people and foreigners and the other rather than place some blame where it really lies which is with a tiny group of the capitalist class which has had each one for too long that is the challenge but personally i get up every morning and i think isn't it great to be alive <laughs> what a moment to live in 
down to all of you, every one of you. Down to every one of you. Thanks, John. Thank you. because they're the invisible rules that actually people follow. So we can change the structures and we can change the name, but if we don't change the culture, it's going to be the same old, same old. Okay, no, no, I've only got time. Hey, hey, you're absolutely right, actually. I should have probably... Look, they only give me 10 minutes, I want 15. But I think, I think it'd be 30. Uh, it's about structure and it's about culture. It's about personnel. And I often say the following phrase, this isn't about changing one, uh, one bunch of blokes in suits or even women in suits for another bunch. That won't work. It won't work anymore. We're not living in that kind of society. And new societies are emerging all around us. This idea of verticality and horizontality. I think the zeitgeist is with the horizontal. Of course, there'll have to be a role for leadership and for a central state, but and I wrote an article about this as well when Jeremy became, became leader. The nature of leadership itself, we have to contest. The idea of some sort of uh, patriarchal figure or charismatic figure dominating and giving orders to the party, to the movement or to the society. It don't work anymore. It's not what we're about. It's, if you think carefully about Jeremy, he's trying to create a different model of leadership. Now, they're criticizing it. A lot of the time, if you analyze what they're saying, they're saying, well, he's not a recognizably political figure in the old-fashioned definition of the word leadership. Well, quite right too, we don't want that kind of leader anymore. We want to build a movement, a social movement, without walls around us where people have to get, climb across. And I was saying that last night at the ADC, by the way. They're trying to put a wall around the Labour Party as though somehow you can seal it off from the rest of society. No, we want to build a movement. Final point, look. I joined the Labour Party a long time ago, 1969. What happened? You heard I was a lefty. I was, I was a, I'm a plumber by trade. I was agitating on the streets. They heard I wanted to join the Labour Party. What did they say? You can't go and join John. It's full. <laughs> the Labour Party's full. How ridiculous. We're going to change all that. We're going to move now to Nancy Platts from Politics for the Many. I'll just, you can introduce yourself because we're a bit 
eight or five minutes, it's quite a lot to fit in. Um, thanks very much for inviting me to talk um, from the Politics for Many campaign. Um, so I'm Nancy Pax, I was a parliamentary candidate for the Labour Party in two general elections, I'm now a councillor in East Brighton. Um, and I want to start by talking about class that the gentleman over there from Southwark raised, sorry I didn't catch your name. Um, Tony. Jeremy. Jeremy. Oh, that's a good name. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's something that we don't talk about enough in the Labour Party anymore, and I think the politics of the Many campaign is very much at the heart of that, um, and around economic inequality. And um, the first time I had to go and vote, uh, when I was 18, I lived in a very strong Tory area that never had a Labour MP. Um, and it's the reason why so many people don't vote still, is because they don't think their vote will make a difference. Um, and I'll never forget that feeling of disappointment of finding out actually that my vote wasn't going to make a difference because I had a Tory MP and there's always going to be a Tory MP where I lived. Um, and it means that local activism is absolutely killed off in those areas. So there is no local Labour Party activism in safe Tory seats quite often. It's just absolutely been killed. Um, and that's a big problem for us. And it's reason behind my fundamental belief that we need a system of proportional representation in the UK. Um, and I come at politics very much from a grassroots perspective. As a, a, a former parliamentary candidate and a Labour activist and now a councillor, I spend a lot of time knocking on doors and a lot of time talking to people about whether or not they're going to vote. And one of the things I'm really pleased that we're changing up, Jeremy, is that we're going to go back to community organising and back to talking to people rather than knocking on their door, asking them how they're going to vote and then running away again in this kind of like electoral system of knockdown ginger for anyone who used to play that when they were at school. Um, but that's a bit like what ID is, isn't it? You go and knock at the door. Their experience of that on the receiving end um, is simply... So can you hear me right? That their um, experience of that on the receiving end is simply that you've asked them how they're going to vote and then they get on with their day, but they haven't really learned anything about the Labour Party. They haven't really learned anything about you or us or what we do. Um, so as a councillor, I'm really trying quite hard to make sure that I'm working with communities and in communities and as part of the community in order to then get people to believe that actually politicians locally and nationally can make a difference. And people are incredibly cynical still about politics, as I'm sure many of you will know, and it's our job to go out there and change that. But if when they get to the ballot box, their vote is still not going to make a difference, they're not going to change their view about us as politicians, us as a political party, or whether or not it's worth going out to vote. And I want to touch a bit on the Progressive Alliance in 2017, because um, it's been in the press recently, you have seen that the Greens have changed their leadership, um, the two co-leaders, the two new co-leaders, have said that there won't be another progressive alliance. Um, I personally um, am not in favour of such things. I think it increases the cynicism in politics because all you have is a bunch of politicians carving up the seats behind the scenes. That actually isn't an improvement on what we've got at the moment. We might have achieved more, we might have got a few more MPs over the line, uh, but that is not a sustainable position for us to be in as a political party. So I think we've got to think more seriously about our voting system. Um, and I have a view that people often feel very safe with the status quo. 
and the status quo of first-past-the-post actually hasn't won us a general election now since 2005. And it concerns me that we're still thinking, if we just hang on, we might get over the line next time and it's all going to be okay. And people do point out that we've got to get over the line under first-past-the-post in order to change the system. And I think we need to declare now, as a political party, that we are going to change the voting system if we get in, because it's only fair that every voice is heard when people go out to vote. And I don't think power is worth having if it's secured through undemocratic means. And I don't think first class post is a democratic system. Now, it was mentioned by somebody about the trade union block vote at conference, and um, I, you know, I've not been in the hall, obviously, to hear the result that you mentioned. Um, but this campaign, Politics for Many, is very focused on the trade union movement. So it's developed by trade unionists, for trade unionists. And it's about trying to get trade unions to even discuss the issue. So back in 2015, the TUC passed a motion that said we should, they were going to run a campaign which is going to talk to people about electoral reform and electoral systems. And that resulted in simply the production of a campaign booklet that just explained what the systems were. That to me is not campaign. I think every person out there who's a trade unionist needs to be confident about discussing the issues. They need to feel informed. And unless you have a debate, you can't feel informed. You need to be able to back the ideas around. You need to be able to express your fears about a first past, uh, about uh, a PR system. You need to be able to talk about it confidently and take a motion into trade union branches to get it passed in order to persuade the leadership of every single Labour affiliated trade union that we need this change to happen. So what we're looking to do is to offer speakers, to get people involved, to get people discussing it, um, and for people to feel confident that they can go in there and say, the reason we need a proportional system is because we need every vote to count. We need people to believe in the Labour Party as a party that wants to secure the vote of every person in the UK that wants to vote Labour, and for that to actually mean something. So I just want to ask a quick question. How many people have we got in the room who are members of a trade union? Excellent. And how many of you are members of a trade union that's affiliated to the Labour Party? Okay, and keep your hands up if you would be happy to take a motion through your branch saying that we are in favour of proportional representation as a democratic voting system in the UK. Okay, so it looks like we might have a bit of work to do persuading people that perhaps first past the post is not the best option then. Um, but that's what we're here to do. We want people to engage with the politics for the many campaign, join the Facebook group, have a discussion. We've got material all over the paper, all over the tables. Um, what we don't want is for fear to stop people from discussing it. We don't want fear of alternative systems to um, deter us from having a debate. Um, I firmly believe that the only way we're properly going to achieve the kind of economic inequality that John talked about is if we have a proper proportional system where every vote counts. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. We're going to hear from Kate and Shafi next and then we'll do questions. So Kate Beard has come over from Barcelona. She's a member of the executive of Barcelona Comú, which is a citizens-led um, party that have tried to prefigure municipalist politics and are now in, in local government in Barcelona. Thank you. I'm originally from London. 
miss you all, don't worry about the accent, but I've been in Barcelona for 10 years. Um, I'm kind of feeling Alice's pain because I feel like we're running badly on time, so I'm going to try and like cut out half of what I was going to say. Um, because some of it's already been said, and I think part of learning to do democracy is not repeating things that people have already said. Um, so, kind of my role here, uh, what I want to do is to explain why municipalism and assembly-based democracy are the way we need to go. At the same time, when I come to events like this, I always have this internal tension because on the one hand, I actually believe that, and on the other hand, I'm actually doing it, and it's really difficult and can, like has its whole <laughs> set of problems and limits. <clears throat> um, so I really want to avoid romanticizing it, and I think that's sometimes a danger when people kind of talk about horizontality and participation, as if they're just these kind of, you know, uh, wonderful utopian things that are just great and easy and wonderful. Um, and when you're in an assembly at 9pm midweek talking about whether your councillor's salary is too high or too low for the 45th time, you can start to you know, not see it quite like that. So to paraphrase uh, Winston Churchill, I would say that popular assemblies are the worst form of democracy apart from all of the others. Um, <laughs> Um, so with that disclaimer, uh, Barcelona Comune, basically our project, which is both a project of government and also a project of um, a political organisation on the outside, um, is based on the idea that we want direct democracy and that the local level is the best way, place to do that. I'm going to skip the whole thing about why we want direct democracy uh, <laughs> and just get to the how, because sometimes, I mean, maybe that's a bit more interesting actually. <coughs> So, so Barcelona is, uh, we've been governing Barcelona since uh, 2015 and I have to confess it's not been turned into a, a commune or a, you know, radical kind of, it's not Rojava, let's put it that way. Um, and actually when we want to move towards that kind of horizon, I think the best way is to start with ourselves and with our own political organisations and start to make those changes where we can and then prove that they're possible, learn how to do it, and then be able to apply it in the institutional context later. So we have an organization that is based on neighborhood assemblies and we have over a thousand activists and that's where we're doing, I think, some of our best work. Um, one of the things we've done, for example, is we've um, our leadership model is collective, so rather than having like one secretary general, we have eight people on our executive. So, you know, if Jeremy Corbyn is into the idea of uh, sharing leadership and new model models of leadership, well, one way of doing it is actually saying we're going to get rid of having these single uh, leadership um, figures. Um, another thing that we've done is that we've um, started to think about feminism and how to bring that into our organization. And uh, we've always provided childcare at all of our events and, and all of our meetings, but we found that we had a problem that people weren't actually using it. Um, and so what we decided to do was to like double down on the deal and we hired someone who is uh, not just providing childcare, but is actually providing like a separate program of um, like social, cultural, and educational uh, activities for, for children. 
Um, so we're really bringing in that kind of uh, perspective. And another thing that's really important is uh, our code of ethics. So we've set up a code of ethics to um, govern the behaviour of our elected and our appointed um, representatives uh, that goes far beyond what the official legal requirements are. Um, so that includes term limits and salary limits, two term limit and 2,200 euros a month maximum salary limit. Like the idea behind that is to combat the professionalisation of politics. So like this idea that you have people, sorry Jeremy, who are in politics for 20 or 30 years um, and you know inevitably can lose touch with real life, especially when they're urging earning huge salaries, they have their expenses and their cars and their, all of that kind of stuff. So we want to keep our elected people like in the real world. Um, financing rules, obviously no loans or uh, corporate donations, tra transparency mechanisms um, and recall mechanisms as well. So like I said before, the idea is to like if we can start to do this in our own organisation, then we can prove that it's possible to change the way things are done and then um, and then roll it out at a larger scale. I'm going to leave it there because I know that you're running short on time. Thank you, Kate. Um, really, I hope not, not to plan any seats, but I really hope someone asks you about these neighbourhood assemblies. And um, Shafi, Jonathan Shafi here from Act as If You Own the Place campaign in Commonweal. Yep, thanks very much. I'll be, um, I'll be quick as well. Um, I think the thing we have to start when it comes to the question of democracy is that even the limited democracy that we have now has been fought for historically by the left, by the working class movement. And that that process uh, doesn't stop. And that what we are going through now, not just in this country, but across Europe um, and internationally, is that there is an attack on democracy. There is an attack on even the, as I say, limited uh, democratic mechanisms that we have. And neoliberalism is part of that process. Neoliberalism, of course, is not just an economic question. It is fundamentally an attack on a democratic society. If you look at Jeremy Corbyn, um, you can look at the attacks that he's under uh, by the corporate media. You look at how power works in society that even what is a huge democratic expression which underpins the Corbyn phenomenon, the fact that he is leader, the fact that he was re-elected after an attempt at a coup for the second time, that despite these moves by a mass movement, that he can still come under such attack from powerful institutions in the society. And so the question of democracy um, is something which has to be at the top uh, of our agenda. Commonweal uh, is part of a campaign in Scotland um, called Act As If You Own The Place and I'll just run through quickly uh, what we've been trying to do with that. We did a bit of research which found that more people would prefer to do the ironing than they would uh, vote in a local election. <laughs> and uh, when you think about that, well, I have some sympathy uh, and I'm someone who's engaged in politics. But we also asked if they would give up a number or two every month to make a direct contribution to their community and the percentage of people was overwhelming who responded positively to that. So our starting point is that there's a problem when it comes 
to the question of local power and to people's relationship with the formal institutions that run uh, both local and national uh, politics. And so our intervention was to try and bring together uh, this question. So through a series of what we called Act As If We Own The Place Councils, we brought people from communities together and kind of took them on a journey which discussed the problems that were in their area, collectively discussed the kinds of solutions they would like to see, and then implemented a kind of plan um, for how they would like to move their area forward. Because we feel that electoral reform, uh, that local government reform, without having at the same time an engaged, organised, mobilised citizenry, um, is only one half of the equation. And through this process we managed to bring together all kinds of people. It culminated in a conference uh, called Democracy 21. And if you look on your tables, you'll see that we launched a declaration uh, on local democracy. And what's important about that is that that wasn't, uh, that didn't come about through a few of us sitting in a room. That came about through this process of local meetings, of national gatherings, of bringing people together to discuss the kind of democracy they want to see and the kind of principles which they felt were important um, to that process. And in the section after this, obviously, we'll have a discussion uh, about that. Um, I know we're running out of time, so I just want to end uh, on this note, um, which is this political crisis that we're going through just now. I think there's still a sense that people feel that things are going to go back to normal at some point over the next few years. The truth of the matter is the opposite. These are only the opening phases of the political crisis. We are looking at another economic crisis uh, coming down the road. That is going to overlap onto the existing political situation, which is highly polarised. The um, levers which were employed in 2008 um, to from the point of view of the ruling class, address the question of the crisis, uh, are now removed. And so it's going to deepen, and the institutions which run our society are going to come under fantastic pressure. That's the European Union, that's Westminster, the financial institutions, the banks. All of these institutions are going to come under the most tremendous strain. And so within the whole discussion about democracy, we have to be thinking about new institutions as well as intervening in the ones that presently exist. What reforms do we need to make, but also what new institutions, what new movements need to be developed that allow people to express themselves and to take uh, control. And I'll end uh, then on what I think is quite an important uh, warning, in a sense, which is that at this moment, the radical right have an agenda on the question of democracy. It doesn't matter what you think about Brexit or all the rest of it, they have an agenda which is about control, which is about democracy, and which is about those kinds of themes. And if the left, at a time like this, can't begin to get its act together on its historic function, which is to bring further power to the mass of society, then I think we run the risk of what John uh, described in his speech, when it comes to Gramsci, uh, it's going to be the monsters uh, that end up winning. So democracy is fundamental to the entire project, and I think we have to look at it in that context. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you.
what we can do is three questions because we want to give enough time, a good amount of time, to the next section, which is going to be discussion um, at your tables and then um, to the panel again. So one round of three. Um, this lady at the front, gentleman at the back, and and the lady in the middle. Sorry, sorry. Uh, we have uh, in Scotland, I think, on a quick calculation, four different collection methods. We have uh, first past the post Westminster, we've got a form of PR for Europe, we have you know, covering the whole of Scotland, we have um, Scottish Parliament with first past the post and a list system running side by side. And in local government, we've got a form of PR. Even within the Labour Party, when we come to make our nominations for the list for the Scottish Parliament, they invent a different system every time. Because I think it's the Don system last time we did it. Most undemocratic thing I've ever seen on parade. None of them have worked for us. I, I used to be agnostic on PR. Through this process, I've become hostile. Our, M our MSPs, uh, particularly those on the list system, are not accountable to their members because they don't have a membership. They have the whole of Glasgow to, to be accountable to, and that makes them accountable to nobody. We have local uh, councillors who are no longer accountable to branches. They're accountable to a, a geographic area that doesn't match anything to do with our party structures. So I think, I mean, touch on what was said that it's not enough just to have the, the, the structures change, but to have the, the culture change that goes with it. But I don't think PR is the answer here. I think we've got to think about how we genuinely make people directly accountable to those that elect them. Thank you. Gentlemen at the back. Thanks very much. Very interesting discussion. Um, I want to kind of get down to brass tacks and be very, very specific because it seems to me that one of the immediate problems we face is that ever since Jeremy got elected, there has been various forms of alliance between people in the Labour right and sections of the establishment, including the media, but also other elements of the establishment in the state, that have been organising to tr try and destroy the Corbyn project. Um, and actually, over this summer, this reached, you know, as we know, peak, and did force some terrible concessions from the left, really. Some very, very serious concessions and retreats from the left. Now, it seems to me as well, this will be like a tea party compared to what happens if and when Jeremy gets elected. And I think we need to think very, very seriously about what it means to respond to that kind of operation that will definitely be mounted to destabilise and destroy a Corbyn government. It seems to me that's the urgent question. Mentioned earlier, John mentioned the movements outside of Parliament are going to be crucial here. 
And I hear that a lot, and I think it's very, very important. I actually think the chicken coup in 2016 was partly defeated by mass mobilisations in Parliament Square in cities up and down the country uh, that were organised actually by the grassroots. But I think we need to start seriously discussing what it will mean for there to be mass rank-and-file trade union and movement-led defence of a Corbyn government when it comes in. Because if we're not ready for it, and we don't have the mechanisms to get tens of thousands of people down to Parliament Square or whatever it needs, then I'm afraid that, you know, the thing could just fall apart very, very quickly. I think that needs to be a very, very serious and immediate and urgent part of our discussions. Thank you. Um, there's just a couple of things I'd like to say. I mean, I understand that there are possible problems with different PR systems, um, but I don't think that's a reason not to um, push ahead with PR. Um, we need to be looking at how, ways of how we can overcome these problems, because until every vote counts equally in this country, we will, no matter what good we do when we get into power, sooner or later when the Tories get back in, they're going to undo everything. And the only, I mean, the only way we could have a, 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 an economy that works for everybody is to have um, a democracy where every vote counts equally. Um, another, another thing I'd like to mention is about the Progressive Alliance. Um, I understand that some things went wrong there last year, but it was very successful in the seats where an, an unofficial alliance was formed. Um, so the analysis by Compass found that in seats where there was an alliance, that the, the national swing towards Labour and other left or centre parties was higher than in seats where there was no alliance. Um, not just because of votes, because of less vote splitting, but because you'd have less left and centre parties fighting amongst themselves for seats, then handing them over to the Tories by default. But. It would look, I agree, it would look like a stitch-up if it's politicians of different parties deciding among themselves who's going to stand in, one, in which seat. So perhaps that's not the direction we should go down, but not to abandon the idea altogether. And that perhaps a more loose alliance where we agree, simply agree not to fight each other for the same seats. Maybe diff different parties prioritise different seats and we just don't argue in public. And in, most importantly, during the leadership debates, that you don't have Labour arguing with all the smaller parties, just for then, as soon as, straight away, as it has happened, not so much in 2017, but in 2015, oh, look, look, they're all arguing amongst themselves. So that makes the coalition of, the coalition of chaos card even stronger for the Tories. So um, perhaps we could, Maybe do maybe talk to other part to leaders of, or other candidates of other parties and let different CLPs make the decision whether we all cooperate or not. Thank you very much. Um, let's take one more and then we'll hear back from from the panel. Sure. Yep. Uh, Adam Ramsey from Open Democracy. Um, you're talking as though the Britain and British state kind of encompasses roughly this policy in this island, when Britain really is about 19 different countries around the world. 80% of the land the British government's responsible for is outside this archipelago. Most of the money the government's responsible for is in tax havens around the world, the most important network of tax havens on earth. So my question is firstly, what can we do to understand that the British state isn't designed to run this policy? It's an imperial structure set up to plunder 
the world, kill black people and steal their stuff? And secondly, how can we overthrow it entirely rather than just arguing about election systems, which is usually a distraction used to stop us talking about how rich people use the government to steal from poor people? And secondly, I'm selling a pamphlet um, called Trying to Milk a Vulture, and you can come and get them from me at the end. Okay, so I'm going to answer the first couple. Um, so on the question of accountability, which was over here, I think, like I said, fear of what the system might look like shouldn't stop us discussing it, because everyone has got stories. But as someone who grew up in a Tory heartland, that Tory MP wasn't accountable to me. He didn't care what I thought if I wrote to him. Um, and this is what people say all the time, that actually, you know, and I, so I work in a campaigning organisation, um, I'm in part of a, a social enterprise, so I work with a lot of organisations around political issues. And that's the most common thing people say, is there's no point in me writing to my MP, because he or she is in a safe seat. And that is the result of a first-past-the-post system. People get into those seats, and they're there forever. They think it's a job for life, and it's one of the reasons why I'm quite glad that the Labour Party is now challenging its own system of selecting MPs. Because no seat should be a safe seat, no seat should be there for life. Otherwise, that MP or that councillor is never, ever going to be accountable. So this isn't something that we should be afraid of. And there are systems where you can keep the constituency link. Um, and when I, work, I worked in Jeremy Corbyn's office, um, and, and his view was, as long as we kept the constituency link, he could be persuaded about it. So I think there are systems of accountability. And I, I think what I see is that people, um, we, we focus very much, as that gentleman said over there, on what the system might be, rather than actually what is the right thing to do. Um, and I think that's what, where we should be focusing our efforts. Um, I'm going to, having worked in Jeremy's office and been there um, the day the coup was made, um, I thought I would take the liberty of commenting on um, what happened, because um, John Trickett and I were obviously there the night of the Brexit vote. Um, it had been made known to us um, from the day that Jeremy took office that there was going to be a coup at some point. The advantage of people letting you know that is it gives you quite a lot of time to prepare. And I would argue that we were probably better prepared than they were. Um, it was done in quite a demoralising way. Um, the, the tactics of some of the MPs was done in such a way as to deliberately demoralise all of the staff in the offices um, by coming up and handing in a notice of resignation on the hour, every hour. Um, and, you know, people that just stopped speaking to us. Um, I think the MPs that stayed loyal to Jeremy were given an incredibly hard time by other people. Um, you know, they were told that they were told that when the other side got back into power, that they wouldn't have a career anymore, and, and all of that kind of thing. And it was quite appalling, actually, what went on. And I think that we got through that purely through sheer grit and determination, and the fact that people felt it was such an unfair thing to do. Jeremy was elected by the members. We are supposed to be a member-led party. Therefore, it's up to us to decide who the leader of the Labour Party is. And anyone that wants to stand in the way of that, 
you can see what will happen, and that will happen again, because I think we will just come back in greater numbers and ever stronger. And um, we now see ourselves a party of over half a million members. And that actually is partly down to the people that tried to derail us in June 2016 after the Brexit Um, but the point you make about getting Joe into government, I think this is what we're seeing all the time now, is one bad news story after another played out. I think we've got to get much better at killing bad news stories. Um, I think we've got to get much better at working together and organising together, learning how to disagree well um, and sticking together. The, the worst thing I've seen happen within left politics over years and years, and many of you will appreciate this, is that we continually divide we find issues that we disagree on and we allow them to divide us. And we've really got to start putting some of those issues aside or resolving them once and for all and moving on and starting to move on in a much more united way than we ever have done before. Because every single issue that divides us now, other people will just continue to drive a wedge between us um, until they divide us properly and actually we lose that opportunity to get into number 10. I think that's in our grasp now. I think it's we're almost there, but to get there, we've got to stick together because you're right. People do everything in their power now to stop us getting into number 10. Um, so we've got to keep our sights firmly set on that target and start making sure that we stop being disunited over issues and we start focusing on the issues that matter, which is getting the Labour government. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to come back on this idea that's come up a couple of times about um, we need a movement, you know, if, if, if Corbyn gets elected, um, he'll be under a lot of attack and we need a movement on the outside. I think that's completely true. Um, in Barcelona we have the same experience, we have a minority radical government that's come from the social movements and we're under attack constantly from economic, media, powers that are completely unelected and unaccountable. Um, but I think we need to pin down exactly what we need a movement means because it's not just like we need cheerleaders. Uh, and I'm slightly worried by this idea of we need to send people to Parliament Square. Actually, like for example in our case, um, where we have strong movements on the outside, I say movements in plural, um, that's where we're able to get our agenda through and where there's not people pushing on the outside, um, that's where we can't. So for example, um, we have um, a series of housing policies that are designed to stop evictions, um, but obviously there's some cases where, despite you know, all of the mechanisms being used from the city hall, it gets to the point where a judge issues the eviction order. You know? And what our city councillors do in that situation is that they tweet or they put on Facebook, tomorrow on X street at nine o'clock, there's gonna be eviction, go stop it. And in our city, we're lucky enough to have a housing movement where activists will go there that day, put their bodies in front of the building and stop the eviction. Um, another example is like we from the city hall want to promote the social and uh, cooperative economy. Uh, through public procurement. So instead of contracting big multinationals, com uh, contracting local uh, cooperatives. 
We can only do that because there are local cooperatives. I mean, it's, you can have a, a government that wants to do that, but if there's no one on the outside setting up those kind of companies, institutions, movements, the institution doesn't actually have as much power as you think that it does. So I think that what you need to start thinking about is, like, for the, for the Labour Party's policy agenda, what kind of institutions and processes uh, do you need on the outside to actually enable them to, to happen? Thanks. We're going to move now to the bus session. You'll see on the tables, there's a card that's got two questions, one on each side, one on the constitution and then what we can start doing um, at the grassroots. And I want you guys to spend 10 minutes on this, just talking as a table, as a smaller group, just to the person beside you, however you want discussing these questions and then we'll come back and have a feedback session. Can anybody give each other an easy slip? So I've got extra ones here. first 10 minutes we're looking at this question, how can devolution create space for new forms of mock-up democracy? So we want to discuss that question for the first 10 minutes and then we'll swap over to the next, the other question for the last 10 minutes. I've just been asked to give a, de a definition of devolution, so it kind of means the, the movement of power away from the centre. So to, you know, you, you decide what, where you want that power to move. Does it move to, to regions, or does it move to nations, or does it move to um, local authorities or municipalities? So I think that's part of the, the discussion. Thanks.
Okay, we've got another five minutes left if you want to switch over to the question, how can we organize to make this happen? And then we'll start feeding back what you guys have discussed. Also, in addition, folks, if you could write down your discussion points, that'd be fantastic because we're going to be collecting them at the end in the box and making a report um, which you'll all be able to access. Thanks.
going to feed back in a couple of minutes, guys. If I could just remind you to write down the points that you're discussing on the cards in front of you and put them in the box at the end, provided just to the right hand side here. That it's a, a spotty box. everybody. We're going to now have a couple of feedbacks if anyone would like to share what they've discussed and written. Our good friend Ollie is going to go around the tables and you can drop the, the cards into the box. Just to remind you guys, we're going to create a report off the back of everything you've written down. It's going to be sent to John Trickett. It's going to be put on the Politics for the Many website. Um, it'll be sent to you if you sign up and then you can send it on to the Labour Party. You can write back and want to amend things, add things. This is an ongoing discussion. Adam. Um, why he's not chairing. Um, so yes, is there anyone who'd like to share what they've discussed and written? Hey. Adam? Hello, Helen, uh, from Reading, member of Unison and a CLP secretary. Um, so we were talking about a number of things. One of the things we talked about was the Preston model um, of local development and engaging with local people, setting up uh, more sort of community-based 
organisations and cooperatives, which sort of seems to align more with the Barcelona idea. Um, but then we were also talking about how some of the structures in particularly in the Labour Party have changed and mean that there isn't the engagement anymore with um, local people. So as an example, in Reading, a lot of our stuff has been, a lot of the development is actually being planned by businesses through local enterprise partnerships who are getting money from central government and the decisions are being made that are then being forced through by the council and if you're a Labour person objecting to it, you're vilified because you're, you should be backing your council. And it becomes quite a, a difficult battle to fight for what you believe you should be getting in terms of the membership engagement. And it's only actually when you're fighting a Labour council that you're getting anywhere. And it's because you're kind of, yeah, fighting them. And that's what's getting people worked up and engaged, which is really sad because it should be the other way. It should be that people feel they want to get engaged, that they will be listened to, and development will go from there locally. And so that's kind of what we were talking about. Thank you. Is there anyone else who'd like to share? Yeah, hi there. We talked about um, political education, the role of trying to get more people from kind of generally working class kind of background standing as Labour candidates and becoming Labour MPs because I think in the uh, certainly in the Blair and the Brown years the lot of people who became candidates and went on to become MPs were people already if you like part of the Westminster system or working in politics already you know special advisors often to um, shadow secretary of state and people working for MPs and uh, trade unions have got a role to play in terms of the political education and historically trade unions did this with many MPs, so you had MPs, I mean Dennis Skinner is maybe an example, and last sort of examples of an MP who was a minor who then for political education and for his union went on to become uh, an MP and the trade unions I'm sure the big unions have plenty of, would have the resources and would be keen to sort of redouble their efforts so that you've got um, people from all walks of life um, and all classes being able to get that political education to stand uh, and get involved in politics and ultimately then go on to represent Labour. So Labour is a more representative party uh, than it currently is in Westminster. Thank you. To the gentleman, to your left hand. I'm Tony Hillier from Swindon and on our table we talked about one particular point was about and it is, some Fred used the expression, back to basics, and it ties in with the speaker talking about neighbourhood groups, getting the decision-making as close as possible to the people who are directly affected by that decision. And that seems to get lost right through to things like um, further education colleges who are taken out of local oh. authority, then a principal's given it, then they're given an HR person and everything else. We lose the economies of scale and we lose democracy. A new initiative, it's not new, anybody could have thought it up, that's happening in Swindon, led by its first meeting in the beginning of October, led by the Swindon People's Assembly and the Swindon Trades Council, is to say, look, we're low on numbers turning out to our monthly meetings. Let's have combined meetings. At the moment, the working title is Swindon Solidarity Network. And we'll try to get together there, and there's seeds that it could happen. Um, <clears throat> Swindon People's Assembly, the Trades Council, Green Issue Groups, 
sexuality, lesbian and gay groups, and uh, neighbourhood groups, so that we collectively have that voice. But I would like to end on saying, I'm particularly having spent most of 40 years in community and related work, like the idea of going back to neighbourhoods where the local people are working together to get things done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming. We're going to round it up there. Um, we have to leave, but please remember to put the, the cards in the box with Ollie. Like I said, this is an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing conversation with the Labour Party about the type of democracy we want to build from the bottom up and how they help us decide what that looks like. So if you want to see the report that we produce, Head to Politics for the Many, um, Adam Ramsey's also got a great leaflet over there. Um, how to get a milk out of vultures? It's not possible, but we're going to <laughs> we're going to do something. So thank you again for coming. Um, look forward to seeing you all again, and have a great rest of um, time at the World Transformed and the Labour Party conference. Thank you.